0: from PRX. This
1: is Studio 360. I'm Curtis Anderson. On today's podcast episode, we're bringing you one of our special series of stories about science and creativity. This time, the final chapter of our series about Albert Einstein. What are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing Einstein? <laughs> Looks like you're unloading dirty dishes, Einstein. Well, why didn't you leave a note saying that, Einstein? Stop calling me Einstein! Stop calling me Einstein! Albert Einstein published his theory of general relativity in 1916. And exactly 100 years later, a group of American scientists using giant contraptions that cost a billion dollars confirmed the existence of one of that theory's most outlandish predictions gravitational waves. Jenna Levin is an astrophysicist at Columbia University who has written a book about that breakthrough. It's called Black Hole Blues, and she is with me here now. Jenna, welcome back.
0: Always good to be here.
1: So, first things first, uh, what is a black hole?
0: (laughs) You think that's an easy question. (laughs) Um, One of the ways we know nature has figured out how to make a black hole takes a very big star at the death state, and uh, it can't resist a complete catastrophic gravitational collapse. So that star gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as it gets incredibly dense. It creates what's called an event horizon, which is a region beyond which not even light can escape. The gravitational field is so strong. You'd have to travel faster than the speed of light to escape this collapsing star. But then the star keeps falling. And so the event horizon's actually a region of empty space. The, the material of the star falls towards the center. What exactly happens to it, we don't know, but it's gone. It's gone by the time the black hole forms. Um, and that's only one way to make a black hole.
1: Is it, for instance, like uh, a Michael Heiser sculpture, which is a pit, or the 9 nine eleven memorial, which are these big black holes in the ground? Is it like
0: You know, that's not a bad reference. In some sense, one uh, way of viewing a black hole is almost like a waterfall of space and time itself. Right. And so in that sense, that's kind of a beautiful um, metaphor. Thank you. So
1: So what did Albert Einstein uh, think of black holes?
0: He was first notified about the mathematical solution that we now call a black hole by a German infantry soldier, Carl Schwarzschild, who was an accomplished astronomer but decided to join the German army and uh, was serving on the Russian front. And he finds the formal mathematical solution describing this curved spacetime around an incredibly compact um, mass, an arbitrarily compact mass. All the mass could be at a point. So it's completely sort of fiction. Right. Einstein's incredibly impressed by the solution. He helps get the paper published, but he says, you know, nature won't allow these things to form. How could you make mass go to a point? I mean, after all, it'd be very hard for me to crush a table with my bare hands. I mean, right. It's very hard to crush things. They resist collapse. Stars are... Big and puffy. They're not collapsed. And that's because of all this nuclear pressure. But interestingly, it was decades before scientists started to think that they could be real astrophysical objects and the death state of stars.
1: So the existence of black holes uh, was was another corollary collateral discovery of the theory of relativity. Absolutely.
0: Right? Yeah. And and a lot of people don't realize that it, relativity is like one mathematical sentence from which you have the ability to derive a complete understanding of any space-time scenario, the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe, the right. black holes. It doesn't mean Einstein pursued all of those implications, nor did he necessarily accept them right away. So Black Holes was an example of an implication of this starting point that it took him a while to accept. And the expansion of the universe was also something Einstein didn't believe until Hubble observed the expansion. But all
1: out of this one simple thing, which is just...
0: It's literally one sentence, one mathematical sentence. When
1: people say it's beautiful, that's the kind of thing they mean. The show will resume very very shortly, but first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at studio360show. And now, back to the podcast. Um uh, so gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. They're what
0: so, gravitational waves are l- literally oscillations or ripples in the shape of space-time. So, Einstein writes down in 1915 this description, which says if you have mass and energy, it will warp, and and stretch and and uh, affect the nature of space and time. The bowling ball on the trampoline. Yes, but li- imagine the bowling ball moves around the. Def- deformation of the trampoline has to follow it. And what Einstein figured very early, he writes to Schwarzschild, actually, the person who talks about the Black Hole, and he says, the most important thing I have to turn to is the issue of whether or not these waves in the shape of space-time exist. So if the bowling ball moves, Einstein theorizes, look, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so the information about the motion of the of the bowling ball and the deformation of the space-time has to be propagated in a wave that travels at the speed of light. So literally, like fish swirling in a pond, creating waves that emanate outwards, those waves are waves in the curve of space-time. If you are in space-time, you would literally bob on the wave. So
1: this was yet another thing of like, okay, I had this idea, this genius thing, and like, (laughs) it implies this, but... He sort of thought like, I'm not sure of this either. He went back and forth for
0: decades. In 1936, 20 years later, people asked Einstein, do you believe that gravitational waves are real? And he says, I don't know. But I know it's a really important question.
1: And when did we... That is you uh, and your peers decide that this they do exist.
0: Well, even that you know it's gradual. So when people like Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne were trying to think of experimental ways to actually measure the existence of gravitational waves, they were very much um, on the forefront because there was a lot again if this is seven, in the 1970s, late 80s? late sixties. Yeah. Uh huh. There were still people who said, "Look, they just don't exist." Even then, and um, but Kip felt very confident, and Ray felt very confident, and so here. They are building these original prototypes during a time when people don't really know if either black holes or gravitational waves right. are real.
1: Which is a big bet. It's staring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, lots of people have been saying, and will continue to say, 2016 terrible year. Terrible, terrible year. year. But but what one, the heck? One of the good things uh, in astrophysics. Uh, uh, your guys, your people found out that they heard, announced that they'd heard gravitational waves. Yeah, I mean, even they were surprised. Right.
0: (laughs) Really? Yeah. So um, the way it's often portrayed is, oh, they just flicked the switch and there was this great discovery. The truth is, it was a 50-year, arduous Arduous campaign, like climbing a mountain kind of a campaign. I mean, bodies were left at the side of the road. Not everybody makes it to the summit. The first generation of machines were constructed in 2000, the turn of the century, and they uh, were excellent machines, technological achievement, but they heard nothing. And so they were, in some sense, on their last leg. They always suspected you would need another generation of machines. So here it's 2015. They've installed the advanced machine, which means they took out all of these components in these huge four-kilometer-long machines um, and reinstalled more sophisticated equipment. And in August of last year, just a little over a year ago, Ray said to me, you know, if we don't detect black holes, this thing's a failure. That's a pretty intense thing to say for a man who spent 50 years of his life on it.
1: And like— and the United States government had spent a billion a plus. A billion dollars.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it swelled from a group of a couple people to nearly a thousand scientists, a billion dollars, two enormous machines yeah. on two different
1: coasts. And the machine. Mm-hmm. Describe the machine. What is the machine? Uh,
0: they're, um, they're, a marvel to witness, you can actually see them from a plane. It, they, each machine is uh, in the shape of an L, and there's there's two primary instruments. So the way it works is you, you shine a laser down the length of the arms of the L, and um, that laser is split into the two arms, and then it bounces off mirrors at the far ends, four kilometers away on each Um, leg. And then it comes back down to the apex from uh, which it originated. The mirrors are incredibly delicately suspended so that they can literally oscillate on the wave as the wave passes like something floating in the ocean. Hmm. And if they bob ever so slightly, the light will come back out of sync. And it's, in a sense, it's like having the body of an electric guitar. So, you know, if you pluck a guitar string, it doesn't technically make a sound, but the body of the electric guitar uh-huh. records the reading shape of the string. So
1: that sound we hear is actually produced by the machine?
0: Yeah, so the machine um, records the shape of the, in this case, it's not a string, but a drum, right, the right, reading drum, SpaceTime right. itself. It records the shape, and the, uh, the guys and, and the girls in the control room literally listen to the instrument through, like, conventional speakers. Uh,
1: And here's what they heard, which is slowed down uh, so that we can hear it. Which, of course, sounds like a bird uh, in (laughs) in the northern regions of magical Canada or something.
0: Um, People always giggle when they hear it. I think they expect something a little bit like lower toned. Well, it's not (laughs) grand. It's not grand
1: and rumbling and intimidating and terrifying. So that is the sound of two black holes colliding.
0: Yeah, that is uh, the final. one-fifth of a second of two black holes that have been orbiting each other for we don't know how long, maybe a billion years. We don't know. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's again, like mallets on a drum. It rings space-time, but only in the final one-fifth of a second is it loud enough to be detected by the LIGO machine 1.3 billion years later.
1: Yeah, which is, like, uh, uh, so much of your... World is and theoretical physics just makes me feel like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the that level of precision that, I mean, Earth is rumbling, it's moving, it's, the, oh, yeah. I, it's almost unbelievable that that measurement could be made.
0: It is. And I, this is why I became so enamored of the experiment. I'm a theorist. I sit with pen and paper and I just work it out in math. To have the, the gall in a way, and the confidence to build something just strikes me as amazing, and to believe you're going to beat down exactly hurricanes, winds off the Gulf, uh, earthquakes in China, yes. yeah, exactly. planes flying overhead, the rum, the trucks driving by on the highway—all yeah. of these things swamp, swamp uh, the signal. Yeah. And so that's what the achievement really is about.
1: And it's all that's beautiful. And I get why this is an important thing to prove. But like, okay, great. What's in it for us?
0: (laughs) You know, I I have to tell you, we don't always have the language for what's in it for us. But I know that on that day, on February 11th, 2016, when they announced the discovery, the whole world stopped. Literally, the whole world stopped. I was interviewed for Al Jazeera TV, you know, somebody interviewing me from Qatar, and we're talking for a second about being under the same sky. And there is just something tremendous about the human desire to know and the insanity of Doing an experiment like this and and the idea of learning about our place in the universe and it should be something that's yeah. absolutely unifying. I'm with you. If we're really lucky, um, it will be a lot like the advent of the telescope 300 years ago. Really? So if you think about that, all we could look for were things we knew existed. Galileo was looking at the sunspots and the rings of Jupiter because he knew those things existed, but he didn't foresee galaxies and he didn't foresee huh. black holes or quasars. He didn't foresee an expanding universe. All of this was was just the beginning. And most of the universe actually is dark. So a very, very small percentage of the universe is luminous, gives us light right. for telescopes to collect. Interesting. So, so, so we
1: now have this new giant uh, three-mile, six-mile telescope uh, essentially, that yeah. that that listens instead of looking. Yeah,
0: so it's like a recording device to add, yeah. lay the soundtrack down huh. for the universe when all we've had is kind of a silent movie and these series of frozen snapshots.
1: So, what would our our friend Einstein uh, have thought of of this detection a hundred years? It's Something after Ray the
0: fact. Ray Weiss, who again was one of the original architects of the machine, talks about. He says he wishes he could show Einstein um, this this discovery, and um, I think it would have been. Absolutely remarkable to him. He never believed there would be any experiment ever in the future of humanity that could do this. So I think it would be a lot of exciting aspects of consequences of his great idea coming together.
1: Jen Levin, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, Kurt. Good to be here. Jen Levin is an astrophysicist and the author of Black Hole Blues. And that's it for this week's podcast bonus episode. If you want to find out more about relativity, enroll in college or small steps. Check out studio360.org where we've got links to the books we mentioned in this series. This series was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Our next Science and Creativity special podcast episodes are about the neuroscience of laughter. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Ten Don't minutes you know of good belly laughter would give me two hours of pain free sleep. Is it's laughter really me, the I'll best medicine? One, be That's dead. next time on Studio 360's special Science and Creativity series. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.